I'm McKinney Smith. After going through a divorce, my sister passing away, experiencing narcissistic abuse, and some significant health scares, I realized through sharing my story that I wasn't alone in my suffering. Suffering, subjective distress generated by the experience of being out of balance. In a deep dive to holistically heal mind, body, and soul is where I discovered peace, clarity, and connection. It is impossible to be truly wise without some real-life hardship, and we cannot develop post-traumatic wisdom without making it through, and most importantly, through it together. Social connection builds resilience, and resilience helps create post-traumatic wisdom, and that wisdom leads to hope. Hope for you and others witnessing and participating in your healing, and hope for your community. A healthy community is a healing community, and a healing community is full of hope because it has seen its own people weather, survive, and thrive. Thank you for joining us on the Heal Her podcast, H-E-A-L, Honor, Elevate, and Love Her podcast formerly known as the Iwaka My Stilettos podcast, the top 1.5% most popular show globally, where we have conversations with extraordinary women on their journey towards wholeness and harmony. And since you're already here, you may as well subscribe. As a certified mindset coach guiding women towards peace, clarity, and connection within, supporting the direction of the system toward wholeness, my goal here is to help you thrive. Kelly Bonner is an expert company culture strategist, award-winning podcaster, and founder of Burn Bright Consulting, transforming workplaces by reducing burnout and bias. She provides a framework for leaders to understand the deeper organizational issues that lead to symptoms of burnout and how to solve them at their core. Having served on the Gender Policy Committee for the White House, as well as the International Women's Economic Security Council, Kelly impacts culture and policy across the globe. She was also handpicked by the Biden administration to develop a national framework for workplace safety and harassment. She's been seen on Ebony, Fast Company, Bustle, and much more. So please welcome to the show, Kelly. Hey, <laughs> thank you for agreeing to come on and, and share your gems and your healing journey with us. I don't take it lightly when women like yourself, I know you're busy, <laughs> so I respect your time and your energy and your knowledge. So thank you. Oh, thank you. This is exciting. I'm happy to be here. Yes. Yeah. So we both, well, I first came across um, the work that you do because we're both on the advisory board for Define Magazine. And, um, you know, I've, I've heard you speak a couple of times, so I'm like, okay, I definitely need to have you on the show. I, I want to hear more about what you do and your journey. So I want to just jump straight in and I want to, I guess, go back and understand from the very beginning before we get to, you know, where you are presently, what was Kelly like as a little girl and what were your aspirations as a teenager? Oh, this is a great question. So as a little kid, I I would describe myself as like very bubbly, very curious, uh, and really kind of wanting to know things, right? And very kind of, I don't think the word, you're not really ambitious as a child. It's more curiosity at that point. Like you just want to know, what about this? And can I do this? And what about, what? what's this going to do? And I really, and I want to just know and 
getting everything. So I would say that in, in a chatterbox, which that's still true. But <laughs> I was like bubbly, chatty, and very, very curious. And uh, teenage Kelly, uh, probably still all those things. I developed a sense of humor. So I, I would say add funny to the mix, but was also kind of curious about things. And my aspirations varied widely because I was curious. I wanted to do everything. I tell people like somebody asked, what was the first job you ever thought you wanted to do? And I was like, I wanted to be a cashier at a grocery store because okay. I thought those buttons look fun. And back in the day, there would be like all different colors. And I was like, I, I want that. And I want to scan things and hear that beep. So that was <laughs> one of the jobs that I thought was going to be my career. And then it, it quickly, the first thing that I formed when it was like, I understood what careers could be, although I still say justice for uh, cashiers, uh, <laughs> was to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a uh, uh, not a public defender, but a defense attorney. That was my first kind of formation of an idea oh, wow. uh, that I wanted to do for a living. Okay. So curious, Kelly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so going from wanting to be a cashier and a lawyer, I guess, give us the the short version of how you became you know, a therapist and got into the work that you do now. Yeah. So again, other funny story. I started watching television and I started watching, there was a TV show, I'm aging myself, called The Practice when I was really young. And it dealt with lawyers from both prosecution and defense, but it focused on the defense attorneys. And I realized I would find myself as a teenager crying watching that show. And I said, oh, no, no, this, this can't be for me. I, I cannot hang. This is, this is, I'm not tough enough for this job. What if the person's innocent? I'm defending. So that quickly kind of pivoted me to, right out of that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the kind of principles of curiosity transformed into advocacy, right? And that's a theme. So the, the threat of advocacy is what connects my entire career. But it started young of wanting to like help people in the legal system. Then it became, well, how can I advocate and help people in a different way that isn't so high stakes? Mm -hmm. And so therapy felt like initially that that was a little bit lower stakes to, to work with folks, advocate for them because I'm a social worker. So anybody who knows social work knows it's a good chunk of clinical work. And it's also a good chunk of advocacy and helping people's life situations be better. So that led me to that. I spectacularly burned out of that job uh, doing direct therapy and then pivoted because of that to saying, okay, how can I keep the thread of advocacy going? And the way to do that was to start working with where are the places where my people are most impacted in their environment and where do we spend most of our time mm -hmm. at work. So it was like, what are some of the things I can do to make work better and advocate for people and instill a sense of mental health and well-being and safety? Wow. Okay. So now I have like a two-part question. Okay. So with the therapy part of things, I guess, as, as a therapist, what were some of the most common traumas that women were working to heal? So the most common was a lot of it was sexual uh, trauma. I think it's still underreported how much women are impacted by sexual assault and childhood abuse, sexual abuse. That was recurrent. General anxiety seemed to be really uh, present. Mm -hmm. And those would be like the two major threads, I think, when I was working with women, along with I worked with people who had significant diagnoses like bipolar disorder, things like that. But when we take away those issues, I think the anxiety and dealing with past trauma, particularly sexual abuse and sexual trauma. Wow. 
I interviewed a couple of women um, on the show that openly shared both childhood and as an adult experiencing, you know, sexual assault, sexual abuse. And they also shared like the, the issues with reporting and the lack of support once you do. And even the aftercare, like one of the ladies who shared, she's in the US, she was basically drugged at a party that she was hosting by a celebrity and was taken advantage of, went to the hospital, did the rape kit and wasn't able to, I guess, file charges because she was originally from Canada and her paperwork was in the process. But then also after leaving the hospital, there was zero support for her regarding her trauma. So hearing stories like that, you know, when you said that you kind of got exhausted from that field, I can totally understand like hearing story after story and, and trying to help people deal with that. Like, so now I'm thinking of, of the second question that I have, but now I have another question. <laughs> okay. So before I get to the, the last question that just came up in my mind, the other part of the question that I had earlier was also you worked in correctional facilities. Yes. And working in a male dominated, and my assumption would be like a misogynistic environment, because I know men that are correctional officers, you know, no shade to people who are. Um, But I guess, what would be some of the core issues that women face working in those environments? Oh, yeah. I, again, you're subjected to a lot of sexual trauma and misconduct in, in a working environment. It's just like it is rampant misogyny. It's, it's very much a hyper-masculine environment, which leads to people just boundary violating left and right. I was not sexually assaulted at my job. I want to be clear about that. But there was a lot of other levels of sexual harassment, intense sexual harassment, a lot of gender discrimination issues. And, and because the environment itself is so, it's so misogynistic. It's so, I worked in a maximum security prison. So let me caveat that. So violent, the environment, and you'd be surprised like who's the perpetrators, perpetrators of the violence, not necessarily the incarcerated individuals, because that was the atmosphere. It, it altered everyone's behavior there, right? Like it mm-hmm. was, it just, the bar is much lower for what should be appropriate and professional behavior at the workplace. Oh, please. That what's that? Like that didn't Mm -hmm. even exist. And what took its place is something that those things would never happen in a modern day workplace. You would never go into an office and see some of these behaviors. And if you did, you'd be like in a movie and you'd win, you know, billion dollars in mm-hmm. a lawsuit, right? So that it was it was it very difficult. I, I think the women that worked there were impacted. It was very traumatic. And I think they either played into stereotypes and and just just got involved with folks and allowed them to kind of be inappropriate, or they really made themselves more gender neutral and very much went the opposite way. And it's like we're, you know, don't look good, don't, don't be visible, any of those things because of it. It really just, it was, it's not a great place. I don't think in my opinion for anyone to work, but Mm -hmm. definitely it impacts women. Yeah. I am like, do I really want to go down this road? (laughs) But okay. So I, I dated someone who was a correction officer for 11 years and didn't realize the extent of trauma and issues they had internally until the relationship got toxic and it's almost like, like you said, certain things are, are normalized or certain things wouldn't happen outside of. So I, I don't know if it's 
just the fact that, you know, they end up spending more time in the prison than actual inmates sometimes. So they, you know, pick up on certain things, but I can only imagine the, cause I know you said you didn't experience like the sexual assault and stuff like that, but what are some things that you experienced working in there that you've had to heal from? For those who can't see my face, when you said you dated a corrections officer for 11 years, I was like, say no more, say less. Yeah, he worked uh, for 11 years, but we dated for two. <laughs> okay. Oh, we worked there. Sorry. Okay. Even for two years, uh, say uh, two days. Uh, yeah. Not to, to, I don't want to just say everybody's like this, but the environment is so toxic. And so you asked me, like, what are some of the things I had to heal from? I, I think for me, as someone who's an advocate, and came into that work to help and heal others. It was really devastating. It was my first professional job. And, you know, I tell people not many people want to be working in the prison system. Like, that's my dream job. I want to go work in a maximum security prison and run a behavioral health kind of department. But it was mine. I was really excited to do it. And I was the only Black employee, too. This is like the largest prison in New York State. And I was one, at, at one point the only Black person working there, there may have been like one other person or two, maybe two at most um, at that time. And it was really hard to work in an environment like that, where you saw people dehumanize other folks of color, uh, create an environment. It it was, I mean, I'm not here to say that the people incarcerated didn't participate in violence, didn't perpetrate violence. Oh, yes. But the environment also, like even outside of them, the environment was, it was encouraging of that behavior. Mm -hmm. And so that particularly was a difficulty. The other part was it was my first job out of graduate school. So, you know, I was young and the level of sexual harassment, I don't think I've, I will ever experience that in my career uh, to the point where, you know, I was getting sexually harassed. Obviously people would expect it from the inmate population, but it wasn't just that, although that was something that was very much pervasive. It was also from the people that worked there and their behaviors and the way that they would, um, like they blame you. There's a lot of victim blaming. There was a lot of like, well, you shouldn't be wearing that. You know, I wear like full turtleneck sweaters, right? And they would still be like staring at my chest. Uh, I tell a story. I told a story to a reporter recently where I said I went, I had to use the bathroom. I was working in a special housing unit, which is like the most max part of a max prison. And I, I just, I normally knew I was like, just hold it, girl, hold it. Don't go to the bathroom here. One, cause it's going to be nasty mm-hmm. Two, because it's like, you never know what you're going to get. Uh, and so I, but I couldn't this for some other reason, I forget what would happen. And I went to the bathroom and it was, and nobody even attempted to like clean the bathroom up. It was filled with pornography and it was filled wow. with specifically black women pornography because they had taken it from they would just take it from the inmates mm-hmm. and then they had it. And I'm like, what job do you have where you would go to the bathroom? And I just remember that feeling of that moment of like, one, these people don't respect you. You're being hypersexualized. They don't experience black women frequently. Mm-hmm. And this is the indignity of my job. Like this is, this is what's come to. Mm-hmm. And there's parts of that, like the inability to advocate and to help anymore was the worst. It was the biggest thing I need to heal from. But then the other way is that these folks were not only abusing the inmates and the incarcerated individuals, they were abusing me and they were abusing anybody who was trying to do, you know, any kind of good work. Mm-hmm. And that was something I had a long road of healing and led to me burning out the way I did. See, I have goosebumps right now. It's almost, I don't know, my my thing about when I get goosebumps, it's like I get into the spirit, like there's something. 
But okay, so I spoke on a, a conference this week, and I spoke on someone else's podcast about this recently, where the the struggles of being the only black yeah. person or black woman, um, mm-hmm. whether it be on an event, whether it be working in a certain space, whether it be you know around your I don't know working peers, whatever, that in itself is already a heavy weight to carry in a healthy environment, but you had to carry that in a toxic environment and then also have to deal with, like you said, going into the washroom and it being covered in black pornography and having like, I can only imagine what you had to endure and the strength that it probably took to even maintain in that environment. Like, and I didn't always maintain. I mean, to be too fair, uh, it's how I describe myself laying in a puddle on the floor, having, you know, a panic attack uh, and having post-traumatic stress from that experience. Yeah, it's it was very difficult. And it was, you know, I worked with I had a peer who was black at one point. She she was an older woman. She was lovely to talk to. Wonderful. But I, I look back and I think, how did you do this job for 20 years? Like she did. Mm-hmm. I think she might have retired from the career. I just couldn't imagine. I'm like, how in the world? Because mm-hmm. I certainly wasn't the person to do it. And it was way too hard. I was also young. But even despite that, it's just such a toxic environment. And it's like you want to do the right thing. And you have all, like you said, I think you said it really beautifully and thoughtfully about the layers of complexity. Mm-hmm. It's bad enough you're only, there's one or two of you and you're spread out. And then you add to it, it's a bad environment. You add to it, there's like sexual harassment. Like there's all these things that compounded it, that it was hindsight, right? I should have known, oh, <laughs> we're going to end up on the puddle on the floor. Like this is mm-hmm. inevitable. Like there's no way you're going to be able to keep this going. Hmm. And I mean, you said that it eventually led to your burnout and now you're the founder of Burn Bright Consulting. So like, let's talk to the tools that you offer. First, what advice would you give to a woman that's listening, experiencing burnout right now? Yeah, I think the most important thing that you can do and what eventually helped me heal, because I mean, once you go down that low, <laughs> you're not just bouncing off in two months and you read a book. Oh, I'm good. I'm healed. Um, it was like a decade journey to healing. But I I would say that the thing that I tell people now where to start is I always say like the gap, what I do believe that burnout is a betrayal. It's a betrayal of self and it's often a betrayal of the system or environment. So if it's, you know, dating burnout, let's say, I mean, I usually I'm, I'm pretty hyper-focused in work, but I like to also stretch the application so people understand that like even in dating burnout, there is a betrayal of self when you're burned out from it, but there's a betrayal of a system that's like, I have to get out here and I got to put makeup on so a man can see a value if you're a heterosexual or, or a partner needs to see my value. So I need to look away. I need to be away. Like there's systems that operate on us that betray us that, mm-hmm. you know, I should be dating's about love works about expression of career. And yet those systems, though, they that maybe how it's marketed, the reality is there's a betrayal of the fact that that's not what a lot of people experience when they're doing it. And so I tell people the way that, because, and it's also a burnout of self, as a betrayal of self, excuse me, in the sense that oftentimes burnout happens when the gap between who you are and how you show up exists. And the further the gap, the more likely you are to burn out. Mm-hmm. And so it's a betrayal of self and, and values. And so the, the, the now long-winded to the short 
point of what I wanted to say is how do you get there? The first thing you do is you establish where your values are. Like what matters to me? Why did I show up at this job? Why did I show up in this relationship? Why did I show up, you know, doing this thing, right? And then you talk about, okay, what brought me here? What was my values to get me here? And are those showing up today? Are those values present and shown? And the gap between that is the betrayal, right? When you don't honor the things that you said you set out to be. I'm going to be the partner that does this. I'm going to be the person that does this kind of work. And you're not able to do that. And I do. that's how I language and, and talk about burnout. You said so many things that I want to unpack. You said that it took a decade of healing journey to get to where you are. And that it wasn't just reading a book and two months down the road. I wanted to emphasize and, and highlight that because I feel like when someone's gone through something, there's like well, we're in this microwave generation where everyone wants yes. things instantly, right? Where they expect to read a book and be healed instantly. They expect to listen to a podcast. They expect to go to two sessions of therapy. They expect that those things, they're going to have instant healing. They're going to be healed. Hallelujah. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work that way. So no. I, I wanted to point out what you said about that, about the 10-year healing journey, because at the end of the day, we all evolve at a different rate you know, based on our environments, based on our want to, you know, based on our, I don't know, our ability to process the trauma, all these things. Um, I would love if you could just share with the listeners any advice that you have on trying to rush their healing journey. Yeah, it it's not possible. I mean, that's the thing you just want to say to folks. It's, it's not possible to rush the healing journey. Everything takes time. And and I honestly think, unfortunately, because the life that we live, we're all on a healing journey. Like that is literally life. It's like a Mm -hmm. two track system of healing and helping, right? That looks different for everybody. Helping could just be like, I raise my kids and they're functional. I've helped the world, right? I don't plan on having no babies. So for me, it's like, (laughs) I'm going to help, you know, in, in corporate America, right? So it's those two tracks and it is your life's work. Like I really do believe, and I've had friends, I don't want to claim this as my phrase, but I've, I've had friends say that's my life work to, to heal. And I believe that it's our life's work to heal and help. So if it's a life work, that implies that it's not going to be done in two months, Mm -hmm. but to compensate and meet you at the knee, that doesn't mean you don't celebrate that you went to therapy for two sessions. You don't celebrate that you did read a book and you started applying those things in your life. So it's now that you have to delay the, the joy and the, you know, celebration of healing. It's just mm-hmm. to manage, just to understand it's your life's work. And that's actually okay. Cause there's no human here who doesn't have something to heal from. And right. so it's like, that's great. We're all on this journey. So normalize that everybody's on the journey. It's their life's work. And then celebrate those micro moments, right? Instead of saying at the end of the journey, just saying, I'm celebrating that, you know, I watched the documentary and now I know this is mm-hmm. what's going on with me. Like celebrate that. Yes, Absolutely. And then you also said that burnout is a betrayal. So I want you to say that again <laughs> so mm-hmm. that it sinks in. I had to write that down because I'm like, that made so much sense. You basically just simplified <laughs> what burnout is. You know, when you talked about the gap between, you know, what you're doing and how you're showing up. And then when you said about knowing your your values and the burnout is basically you not living up to that, basically. Is that what you said, right? Yes. Yeah, I wanted to repeat those because I feel like sometimes people listen to things and, you know, whether they're multitasking or it goes over their head or in one ear and out the other, I just wanted to make sure that that repetition was in there to help it sink in a little bit. 
Yeah, it's so important that it is. And I here's another little simple example. I tell people in the career space that one of the ways that shows up is you say family's a value. My family's important to me or my partner's important to me. But you're missing your kids' games because you have to work late or, you know, date nights Thursday at six and you're blowing in the door at 550. And so you're just like barely conscious or barely present for your partner. But you've said to everybody, like if somebody was to ask you, what's the most important thing to me? Oh, it's family or it's my partner. There's the betrayal, right? It doesn't, it's in small insidious ways. It's not some big thing that you're doing. You're not stealing from your job or you're not abusing someone. It's the small ways, mm-hmm. you know, that we betray ourselves every day that add up to burnout. And then you have the system, like your work, even asking you to stay late is a betrayal of mm-hmm. your of the system of work. You know, someone pushing your boundaries in a relationship is a betrayal of you, of, of the relationship, right? And it's outside of you. And yeah. so it's those two things working together that cause burnout. Yeah. Well, you now take care of people who take care of the world. So what inspires you most about what you do? Well, this is a good question. <laughs> and this is going to be an odd, I don't know if it's going to be an odd answer, but here's what I will say. And I've gotten good about saying this as an answer and not feeling guilty about it. What inspires me is the life I'm able to lead. Mm-hmm. That me following my passion, I feel like what has happened in helping fields, and like I said, we're on two tracks to heal and to help, is that we blend the two and we're like wounded healers. And it's as a result, we're not taking care of ourselves. We think the life's work mission is like, well, how do I know I did good is when 20,000 people said you laid hands on me and now, you know, I I have all my issues have gone away. And that level is just like there's no you in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I would say what inspires me is that I've created the life of my dreams and, and will continue to expand that. And I get to do the healing and the helping. Like I do, it does, it does light me up to see people transform and feel good and say thank you, you know, and different things like that. But what inspires me is the person I've become. Mm-hmm. Is like I get to be working actively to being the best version of myself. I get to go to work every day. I tell people, I wake up naturally now. I don't need an l- alarm. I only spend time with people I like. Uh, this mm-hmm. is unheard of. For everybody on here, I know you're <laughs> like, are you? where are you living, Kelly? What Shangri-La, <laughs> paradise, heaven did you find? But because I've, I mean, I've, I've been working in corporate and in jobs for a long time. It's just, you don't get to work with people you like. And it doesn't mean they're my best friends or they, they come and hang out in my home, but I actually work with people that I believe are good intentioned Yeah, and that show up, you know, somewhat smiley. Yeah. And that's the thing that I feel like if I can model anything, particularly for women that inspires me is to be able to walk the healing journey and not just talk the healing journey, yeah. which I think 95 and I'm that person, like I'm not sitting here saying this is a recent shift. I'm the person that was like, yeah, get healing, manifest, feel good, take care of yourself. And it's like, girl, your life don't look nothing like there's no <laughs> manifest healing joy. You yeah. out here crying and binge watching Netflix. Like, what, <laughs> what are you doing? You know, and so yeah. it's like to be able to create that life is what inspires me the most, honestly. I love that. <laughs> what what you said um, at the, the last part. So for myself, my mentors thing for us, like all of um, his coaches, he's like, be a product of the product. Because we, like yes. you said, we see so many people out there 
quote unquote coaching or life coaching or whatever you want to call it. And their life is a hot mess. So (laughs) my, my biggest thing has always been to choose mentors and ask counsel, like seek counsel from people that I wouldn't mind switching places with. Like yes. if your life is a hot mess. I no, thank you. I don't want your advice <laughs> because your thoughts, feelings, and actions have given you your results. And I don't want those. So yeah. I get it. I get it. So I guess my question to you is, you know, what, because you're living the life of your dreams, when you are being your most authentic self, when you are living life on your own terms, that obviously affects relationships as you go in life, you know, it it puts them in jeopardy. So how have you navigated the relationships around you as you've evolved? Yeah, this is a great question. I again, having this conversation with somebody else about that, about the concept of leveling up and when you, and leveling up, not meaning, you know, oh, I made more money this year. I mean, more like healing, like leveling up in the, the way you show up that there are people and places and things that you outgrow. You know, I tell people like I used to when I was a therapist, I would say growth is literally that it's like trying to get back into pants that are three sizes too small. (laughs) That feeling is so uncomfortable. And I'm like, inevitably, I'm just going to manage expectations when you do the work. That's how it's going to feel with some of the people in your life. And so I, I learned to say that I don't love those people any less. I just love them from a distance. Yes. Like it's not an and or I don't get to say, oh, I don't love you anymore. And I think the guilt that stops us as women, particularly as women, because men are real good. Like you're not together. <laughs> Bye. I'm off to right. be with the CEO. On to the next. <laughs> I, I'll see on to the next, bro. I'll see you when you get it together. And yeah. women, we have this guilt, right? That makes us feel like, but they're a good person. Remember when they helped me out at, you know, in 1998 and all <laughs> these things. And and I what released me from that was saying, yeah. And you get to love them. I don't mm-hmm. love anybody less. I still love these folks, but they're not in my day-to-day orbit. They, they're they yeah. from a distance. Yeah. And that's just a healed position to take. It's like, I have to readjust the name of the, the relationship. Like it's not best friends anymore. It's yeah. friends. And then maybe it's just acquaintances, but my feeling about them doesn't have to change. I don't have to love them 10% less because they're just a friend and 40% because of acquaintances. I get to love them as much as I want. I just get to love them not up close. And we need to get to a place of like healing means I love you from over here, Mm -hmm. (laughs) not Mm -hmm. in my face, not here in my orbit to kind of cause chaos and, and interrupt my journey. I resonate with everything you just said 1000%. I agree wholeheartedly. And I, so I often get asked from women, like in my DMs and stuff, like how, so they have a very hard time as they evolve, whether it be in their business or through their healing, they have a hard time with letting go of people. Mm -hmm. And it's like, the more that we evolve and elevate, whether that be energetically, spiritually, monetarily, whatever, you attract people who are more like you, right? Like attracts like you attract what you're in harmony with and you'll repel people who are not. So as you evolve, people are going to fall off. You have to be okay with that. It And like you said, it doesn't mean you love them any less. They are just not in your inner circle. So I, I love the example that you gave about fitting into that pair of pants that is three sizes too small, because I, I feel like a lot of women will try to force themselves into yes. those pants that are three sizes too small, trying to do up the zipper, trying to do up the button and pinching them themselves yes. instead, of, instead of letting the pants go because they don't fit. Yes. 
Yes, let it go. And again, we, we do this, and but it is a it is a great explanation of how it feels to grow and how it feels to restrict that growth. And that's mm-hmm. how you see it. There's some folks that interrupt the growth, and it's a two part thing. It's like you don't guess. Guess what? You get to love them as much as you always love them. So get rid of the guilt because you love them. You get to do that. Um, and the second piece that it really is important is this abundance mindset. It's that mm-hmm. you you brought up like more people are coming. And that's been something that I have like I have my own affirmation that I say about that. And I say, you know, I always tell myself, you know, there's more and there's more and there's still more. Yeah. And I affirm that. And so it's letting go of folks gave room for the best people I've ever had at this point in my life to exist. And mm-hmm. I didn't have to stop loving them. I just had to make room for yeah. the folks that would help me move a step further and know that there's more. Yes. And more, you know, and it's and still more. And yeah. so that has helped me as well. And then when you do it, first it's scary because you're like, well, it's coming for me. But then once you do it, you see, oh, okay. Yeah, there's more. Oh, yeah. this person's really great. Oh, yeah, you're right. And it it reaffirms for you that this is this is the right thing to do. Yeah. Uh, my um, affirmation is I'm expanding in love, success, and joy. Because I, f- exactly. I feel like sometimes we're either only focused on business or only focused yeah. on personal. So I just want to be a well-rounded human being. <laughs> yes. Smart. Exactly. You covered all the bases with that. It's a great <laughs> affirmation. Thank you. So before we go to the final segment of the show, I want you to tell people where they can stay connected with you online and learn more from you and about you. Yeah. So you can connect to me online at kellybonner.com is the website, as well as across all socials as Kelly A. Bonner. And if you are particularly a Black woman, I also have a podcast called Black Girl Burnout. And you can just put Black Girl Burnout. It'll pop up all the things. um, And you can find me there as well. Perfect. So I will have all of your links in the details section in the episode so they can just click and connect with you directly. They don't have to search too far. Awesome. And the final segment of the show, it's kind of like a rapid fire. Well, I try to make it like a rapid fire, you know, getting you to answer one word or one sentence. But I also like don't like to fit into a box because I'm claustrophobic. So if you feel that you need to expand, (laughs) then you're free to do so. (laughs) All right. All right. (laughs) All right. Um, What's the first thing you do at night before you go to bed? I usually grab a a cup of tea. Okay. What is the first thing you do in the morning when you wake up? If I'm sticking to my routine, the first thing I do when I get up is I have like a series of app, an app that I open that does some like coaching, some meditation, It's 10 minutes. I use a combination of the fabulous app and the happy, not perfect app. And that usually sets me in a good space. Love it. Okay. If you could create one law that everyone in the world had to follow, what would it be? Kelly supremacy. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, what would be the the law that I would create that I think in some ways it's the golden rule, right? That people would just be, do unto others as you want done unto you, that people would healed people and stable people would want to to live a life that we would practice that more often. Love it. Okay. Um, if you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say and why? Oh, this is a good question. Um, you're stumping me now. <laughs> <laughs> My billboard. Um, 
say? I think it would still go back to that affirmation right now. I mean, if you ask me next month, it might be something different, but to let people know and to keep it very open-ended that, you know, there's more and more and still more mm-hmm. that people could change their mindsets. I think that drives a lot of the scary behaviors we see in people and the unhealed ones is that they mm-hmm. don't think there's more of anything. Name it. They don't think there's more of it. Yeah. Cause they have a fixed mindset. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Name a book that has changed or greatly impacted your life. Oh, so many. I'm a huge <laughs> book nerd. Like you got, there's like subgenres. I could give you like a like romance novel that changed my life. I could give you the self-help book. Okay. All right. All right. Fiction. Their Eyes Are Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. That, and I have to do a plug for that book. That book is a, it may be a challenging read because they go into Floridian 1940s dialect. But I will tell you, it is the most watching a black woman write in the twenties about joy, even despite through tragedy is the most beautiful thing I've ever read. Her analysis Mm -hmm. of love gave me hope. And if people read it, maybe they didn't see it that way, but it was just like this concept of this woman who's like, she calls herself petal open or petal closed. And if she's receptive or not receptive to the, and she has some loser men in her life, but that's not the thread of the book. It's not even a, it's about her coming home to herself as a woman. And I read that book every year and every year it like, I've now become the age of the woman in the book. Mm-hmm. And so I'm hoping to get myself a young man. Cause there's a young man in there. <laughs> um, but it, the concept of coming home and keeping the beauty and the joy and the romance. And that's not about a person. It's about a state. Mm-hmm. Janie in Zora Neale Hurston's The Eyes Are Watching God is probably one of the most beautiful books I've ever read. So that's my fiction pick. My nonfiction pick, because I'm sorry, this is the one I'm going to blow out the water with <laughs> talking a little bit over, is what is a great nonfiction book? I love Brene Brown and I've, mm-hmm. I've loved some of her stuff, but I've also, um, a lot of Yana Van Zant's work as resonant with, with me. I have, I have often the balance of understanding like braving the wilderness or daring greatly would be one. Oh, last one. The last book I would say is Elizabeth Gilbert. And I will tell you, not that I'm not going to go on it, but <laughs> she's controversial. And I, I understand why she's controversial. Mm-hmm. So bear with me. I did not read Eat, Pray, Love. This is not the book I'm going to recommend. <laughs> Uh, it is, uh, it's about creativity. Oh goodness. I'm blanking on the title. Uh, I will remember it before we go, but it's about big magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. It's about being a creative and how to practice creativity in anything you do, any, how to make your life creative. And it's been beautiful. It's a great book. Uh, so first of all, I'm adding all of those books to my reading list. Um, I'm typing them in as, as you talk. I'm like, okay. Um, I am definitely, um, I'm going to say in the last couple years, a big, big reader. Like I went from not being able to finish one book in a year to last year reading like 24 and the year before reading like 21. So I'm at every book suggestion I get. And especially because of how you describe them, I'm like, add to my list. <laughs> Yeah, magic will make you like Elizabeth Gilbert because she talks about how to be a creative and how women deny creativity, you know, and her journey to creativity and and what that looks like. Like there's a story of a woman who takes up ice skating for fun, but she's like, she's being creative by ice skating. And so it's really a call for you to like find the thing that lights you up. And the way she discusses if you're a writer or creative in any any sphere, she will like, she just, it's magic. And she does mm-hmm. make 
the process of creating magical. And that would be the book. Not her fiction stuff, but or the Eat, Pray, Love. That particularly, I think, is like she hits on a universal kind of truth. I'm I'm looking forward to to reading that because I so I think it was 2019. Um, I heard her speak. She came to Toronto, and like you said, she could be pretty controversial. There were some yes. people who kind of walked up and used that as their washroom break because she was saying some stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I'll definitely <laughs> read that one. And for uh, everything else, my quick plug is just DM me because if you want a romance, <laughs> oh girl, I got a list. But that's if you want some like non deep. Just some good stuff. I just hit me up. I, I will tell. I'm always proud to tell you a book wreck. Do you have um like a Goodreads page? I need to. Yeah, so that we can see like what books you've read and yeah, I'm gonna put someone, one together. I'm gonna yes, put one please. together. Yeah, because I want to follow you on there because I want to read what you're reading. <laughs> yeah, and I'm always reading something good. I mean, I, I gave you all the serious like healing and growth books, but I oh I could give you some good just. <laughs> Any, any, any book. I got a, I got a sub, like I said, I got a genre for everything. You want a thriller? I got you. You want a romance? I got a subversion. You want a Jane Austen <laughs> romance or you want like a black girl magic romance? I got it all. I got it all. So hit me up and I'll make a good reads page. Listen, I, let me know when you make that good reads page because I'll be following you and reading all of your suggestions. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay. So when and where are you the happiest? I'm the happiest by water and uh, or sometimes in the tub in water, but not in, like the ocean. And I would say next to nature. So like I have a window open and I could hear the water. I could see the water. I'm out on a deck. I- I'm, you know, I'm still stereotypically black. I'm not trying to go hiking, but <laughs> that piece is when I'm happiest is, or a new city, those two options, or I'm exploring a new place. I love to travel. And I'm just like the happiest you can be doing that. I love it. <laughs> so I, I like you. I enjoy being by the water. Um, I love, you know, sitting on the beach and all that stuff. I am, I guess, the the non non typical black because for the last what two years, three years since the pandemic uh, started, I started hiking, and I was going on like a hike every day. I was trying to do like a two hour hike every day, and then you know life happened. But yeah, I I laugh when people say that. So I have a girlfriend of mine that actually started a group called I think it's Black Girls Hike or something like that. Because it's, you know, not quote unquote typical. Yes, <laughs> it's very not typical. There's another woman I love called We Color Outside. And mm. she also, her name is Nyla Blades. And she also does a lot of work with this space. I've like interviewed her and talked to her. And I, I love it. Like I, I just, I will do walks. I'm not really one to start climbing a mountain because one, I just wheeze my way up. But uh, I I like a stroll. I do like yeah. a stroll, but I am yeah. happiest by walking. <laughs> You know what? Okay, so your strolls, I'm totally going off topic here, but like the same with books, how I never used to be able to read anything. And now I read a lot. The same with walking, where I remember a point, it was probably in 2018, where I could barely walk around my block before I got exhausted. And I'm like, okay, this is too much. And then I slowly increased it until I was able to do these two hour walks and going out to, you know, nature trails and conservation areas. So it's, you know, it's, a slow evolution <laughs> to yes. getting there, but yeah, it's, it's totally doable, probably more than you think. I, I will take your word for it, but I, I am still, I do believe in getting out in the outdoors and, and the strolling and the movement and the watching of nature. That's so healing. It's so restorative. Yeah. Okay. Last but not least, what do you wish women would do more of? Choose joy. 
I don't think we do that enough. Just make joy a priority in your life and understand that you can get it anytime you want. And we think happiness and joy are the same things. They're not. Mm -hmm. Joy is very much an internal process. And so therefore, since it's just dependent all on you, you get to have it whenever you want and making that a priority. And I don't hear hardly anybody talk about joy. I made it a dedication for me to talk about it everywhere I go. And if I have a microphone, I'm going to say the word joy at least once because we don't say joy and we don't practice it and we don't prioritize it. And if we prioritize joy, everything else, because part of joy is healing, part of joy is boundaries, part of joy is saying, you know, no, part of joy is has self-care practice. If we made joy our priority, everything else, particularly for women, would fall into place. I love that so, so much. And the, I feel like the reason why that that resonates with me is so earlier when I shared with you that one of my um, affirmations is I'm expanding in yeah. love, success, and joy. One of my other affirmations that I say regularly is I deserve to feel joy because yes. a lot of us have been conditioned to live this struggle life and we don't yes. accept and own that we deserve to feel joy like on a regular Yes. I always tell people that's the crux of the Black Cobra podcast is opting out of struggle and opting into a life of joy and authenticity that you can just say, I'm opting out. I'm not, the struggle is not for me. I'm going to do something different with my day. And choosing that is so healing. And it's just knowing that it's available to you, which most people don't know. There's another option. I don't have to just be in the struggle bus. Yes, there is one. Please choose joy. Prioritizing it is so important. And I love the word that you use, choose. We can choose joy. So choose wisely. I feel like, like you said, people don't realize certain things. Like we we have the option to choose. And most people either don't choose wisely or they don't educate themselves to realize that there are other options. So they stick with where they are. And that in itself is a choice. Yes. And it's, it's such a... It's a powerless choice. And I think mm-hmm. as women, we're conditioned to feel powerless. Again, that system's pushing upon us to make us feel powerless and to restrict choices. But we have far more power than we know. And it's just about where we apply it and where we use it. And applying it to joy is a practice. It is like a revolution. It is a political statement. It is all of those things. It's a spiritual statement. It's all of those things. And it doesn't cost you anything like so many other things that you may do. There's a cost built in it. Joy doesn't cost you anything in the end. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. Thank you so much, Kelly, for not only sharing, you know, your healing journey, but also the tools that you've shared. I know that the women that are listening are going to like gain a wealth of knowledge from this. So thank you for your time, your energy and your wisdom. Thank you for having me. This was wonderful. Awesome. Thank you. And to all of you healers out there, until next time, subscribe on all platforms and don't forget to rate the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcast. We want to hear what resonated with you from what Kelly said. You can screenshot this week's episode. You can tag Kelly at Kelly A. Bonner. That's K-E-L-L-E-Y-A-B-O-N-N-E-R. And you can tag myself at The Real McKinney Smith. And I just want to thank each and every one of you that continues to listen each week to help the show rank globally in the top 1.5% most popular shows out of over 3 million podcasts. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. A healthy community is a healing community and a healing community is full of hope because it has seen its own people weather, survive and thrive. So let's continue to heal 